Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the FT Money Show from Investors Chronicle and FT Money. Hello and welcome to the FT Money Show. In today's programme, building societies. As the credit crisis lingers, could mutual societies be affected or even taken over? Individual savings accounts. You've got a month to invest in an ISA, but what can you actually hold in these plans? Buy-to-let property. Have you paid tax on your rental income? If not, watch out. There's a ghost about. And we have some good news and bad news on an investment returning 10%. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on all of these money matters in downloadable form with the help of my colleague from FT Money, Steve Lodge. Hello. And from Investors Chronicle, John McLeod. Hello. Hello to you both. So let's start then with uh, this week's money news. And uh, earlier in the week, Britannia, the second largest uh, building society, announced a reduction to the mutual cash bonus that it pays to its members, uh, reflecting its lower profits. I think the average payout is only around £50, and the reduction will be up to around 10% off that uh, payout. But it does actually impact, I think, a million savers and borrowers. So, uh, Steve, I suppose the questions are, is this a tangible sign of the effect of the credit crisis on building societies as well as banks? And could it lead to takeovers of building societies and therefore carpet-bagging opportunities for, for windfalls? Well, it definitely is a tangible effect and it's a complicated scheme you're right that about it's about 10 percent reduction in the overall payout of about 50 million they're bunging out to people but you qualify according to different products it's actually 22 percent reduction in the uh, pence per point you need to know the scheme Um, but the wider point is yes it is a sign that building societies traditionally conservative mutual lending sector is also facing tough times, care of the credit crisis. They're relatively resilient, though. Remember the problem with Northern Rock fundamentally was about funding. Um, Building societies are typically funded retail. They're a lot more stable. Um, They haven't been so exposed to this sort of, if you like, uh, subprime lending directly. Um, But, you know... The, the, the long-term trend in building sites is consolidation. Would you believe there are 59 of these institutions around? And the Britannia is the second biggest, and the Britannia is still very small in banking terms. Only the Britannia and the Nationwide really feature on the national uh, retail savings scale. And you have tiny little one-branch building, one building sites elsewhere. So 
you've got a long-term trend of um, consolidation, mergers, fewer societies around. Um, what could have come out of the credit crisis itself, of course, is losses, whether losses on particular forms of lending, uh, self-certification lending, um, buy-to-let and so on, or indeed um, uh, society's losses on these obscure exotic instruments. One key area pointed out by at least one analyst was um, that mortgage fraud, of course, becomes more exposed um, in a period of economic and housing slowdown downturn. Um, who bears the brunt of that? Of course, it's the lender because they turn out not to. The loan goes bad one way or another. Um, so that could cause problems with a couple of smaller societies. Another area is uh, some analysts say that um, while most exposure to these exotic instruments, CDOs and CIVs, has been at the at the very highest end, the biggest um, uh, building societies, Britannia said they had a tiny exposure, um, negligible, I think it's, it's fair to say. Uh, Nationwide has talked about this in the past as well, but some analysts think that this could extend down the scale to, to these tiny, there might be a small building society somewhere where the treasurer has been playing with things they shouldn't have done. Uh, yeah, I have to say, though, I'm very surprised um, by this, uh, this possibility because, uh, John, I think... Uh, uh, like me, your view was that building societies operated on a sort of fundamentally different business model from the banks, such as Northern Rock, which have got into trouble. I mean, I thought, that the, the, Steve, that they borrowed from the, the members and so should be insulated from the credit crisis, unlike the banks that have been borrowing on the, on the credit markets. They do borrow more from their members, it's true, and they are required, I think the rule is, to borrow at least 50, to, to get at least 50% of their funds from the retail market. They do have to get wholesale funding. They also do, in some cases, have exposure to these exotic instruments, which effectively are where the subprime problems really coming across the Atlantic. But, of course, they too, in recent years, have diversified into these um, unusual, supposedly higher margin uh, mortgage areas, whether buy-to-lets, self-certification loans, non-conforming loans is the politically correct term over here. You don't normally hear too many lenders talking about their subprime lending over here, but but essentially it means to people with a poor people with a poor credit record, um, perhaps the self-employed, and so on and so forth. So if if some of these loans are non-conforming uh, and indeed non-performing in terms mm. of um, uh, repayments coming in. If a small building society got into a little bit of trouble, it started to make losses, could we see the takeovers that we've seen in previous years? I suppose most recently there's, it's the, there's the nationwide Portman example, um, but obviously we, we saw a whole load several years ago. Um, could there be more carpet-bagging opportunities to get a windfall payment if a small society gets taken over by one of the larger ones? Um, Yes, there could be opportunities to uh, be a part of a merger. But some of these mergers might amount to rescues. The more they amount to rescues, the less people want to buy that society. Um, and that's the other issue as well. There might not be so, so much competitive bidding around. Remember, no one wanted to buy Northern Rock as it stood. No, very good point. Um, so someone might not want to buy a building society that's gone bad, even if it hasn't gone as bad as Northern Rock. Um, so the windfalls might be negligible or at least more limited than recent years. That being said, I mean, those windfalls, those merger windfalls have become something that new bonanza to those 
good old-fashioned carpetbaggers. Well, I think you're one of them, aren't you? I am a, I'm a pre-carpetbagger carpetbagger before the term was even invented. Um, well, you kind, of, you kind of invented it yourself almost. Oh, that's very kind. But um, the... In recent years, so, so the original carpet bagging to go back was, was, was of course, building societies that were demutualising, becoming banks, the Halifaxes, the Alliance and Leicesters, and you were getting free shares and so on. Um, th- but in more recent years, the trend has been for, towards um, members of societies that are effectively taken over in what are called building society mergers, but they're effectively being taken over to get a payout, to, to vote for the deal. Uh, typical minimum is about 200 quid. So it has been possible to be a carpetbagger in the old style, open your £100 account and triple your money, so, so to speak. So knowing what you know about the building society sector and given your carpetbagging instincts, are there any societies that uh, might have a new account opened in the name of Lodge S in the next few days? Well, to be honest, no, Matthew, because frankly I have all the accounts I need. But, um, <laughs> um, but I mean, there, there are any number of names in the frame and perhaps it's unfair to suggest that any particular one will go. But there are 59 out there. Um, in general terms, experts and industry insiders say some of these smaller names are living on borrowed time, whether because of credit crisis issues or just because of the regulatory burden. Some of these small societies are one branch, half a dozen people. They clearly are going nowhere. Um, if the future is a more commoditized retail savings, retail borrowing environment. Um, but another interesting area is, is what's one um, industry insider dubbed um, wannabe national players. So it's these societies with a, with a regional focus, but they're actually trying to pretend to be more than they are. So they're not really national names at all, like the Britannia or Nationwide, but they're very focused in an area, but they sell nationally. Um, they're neither fish nor fowl, says this particular expert, and so they can neither become that kind of niche, loyalty-driven player, and nor can they compete with the big boys, so they could go as well. But then other people will say it's the big players, um, that again, you know, even, you know, even the Nationwide is a small bank. Um, by international standards. Uh, 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 that's, uh, that's worth bearing in mind. Um, so it, if you want to um, uh, see Steve name some names, you'll actually have to read his article, which is uh, in uh, FT Money with the Weekend FT uh, on the 1st and 2nd of March, and it'll be online at ft.com forward slash money as well. You can also send in your questions and comments about banks, building societies or any other aspects of, uh, of saving um, by emailing us at ask.ftyourmoney at ft.com. Still to come in the programme, the spectre of the tax inspector haunts buy-to-let houses and we have some good news and bad news on Abbey's new 10% offering. But first, with the end of the tax year looming larger, there are just over four weeks to choose an investment to hold in an individual savings account, or ISA. What you may not realise, though, is that not all of the funds on the market can actually be held inside ISAs. And, uh, John, you've been looking into this, haven't you? It started off where we discovered that one particular exchange-traded fund, Lixor Gold Bullion Securities, couldn't be held in an ISA because it doesn't have the correct registration. So, to find out a bit more about what can and can't be held in an ISA, I spoke to Mick Gilligan from Broker Killigan Co. So, Mick, investors will be looking to buy funds for ISAs now, but there are some funds which um, can't be held on an ISA. I believe some offshore funds can't, can't be held. That, that's correct. Um, so it, it's not necessarily a case that just because 
um, somebody's marketing a fund or that um, somebody's read about a fund somewhere that, that it, it means that it's automatically eligible for an ISA. Um, so a lot of this has to do with where the fund is domiciled um, and whether or not it is listed on a recognised um, investment exchange that is recognised by um, the, the tax authorities in the UK. Um, but generally speaking, if it's um, a UK um, registered fund or if it is registered for sale into the UK, then more often than not it will be eligible. Um, that's in the case of things like unit trusts and OICs. And in the case of exchange traded funds, so for example investment trusts or um, ETFs, then typically if they're on a recognised investment exchange such as London or any of the major markets globally, they would typically be eligible for inclusion in an ISA. One area which seems definitely not, not always to be known for ISAs really um, are individual hedge funds which are listed offshore or domiciled offshore. Indeed, yes. Um, and typically these would be um, domiciled in a jurisdiction such as Cayman or Bermuda, which are very regulated, regulation light. Um, uh, and also they would not be typically registered for sale into the UK, um, nor would they normally be um, listed on a recognised investment exchange um, in the same way that investment trusts are in the UK. But of course you can use the funds of hedge funds that are listed as, in, as investment trusts. Absolutely, yes. Um, so um, th this is a growing part of the London market whereby we've got structures that are you know, very similar to investment trusts. These are um, closed-end investment companies and they hold um, typically a portfolio of hedge fund strategies. Um, and um, provided they've got, they're listed on the main London market, then they're eligible for inclusion um, in, in ISIS. No, sticking to the point about registered stock exchanges, the alternative investment market in London is not a recognised stock exchange, but there are actually some funds traded there which still can be held in ISIS. That's absolutely right. Yes. Um, uh, so yeah. So so M in itself is not a recognised exchange for ICE inclusion for the UK tax authorities. But a number of funds have sought um, secondary listings on other markets, and the, the favourite one seems to be the Channel Island Stock Exchange, which uh, which is a recognised exchange for for ICE inclusion. So you have funds such as um, Close or Blue, which is a, a portfolio of hedge fund strategies, CQS Rig Finance Fund, uh, which is a high-yielding bond and loan fund, and uh, a fund called Utilico Emerging Markets, which in fact um, moved, um, gained a secondary list in Channel Islands this year for, uh, for that reason too, so they could um, be eligible for, for retail investors who wanted to put the shares into ISIS. That was John talking to Mick Gilligan of Killick & Co. And for more on what can and can't be held in an ISA, look out for John's article in Investors Chronicle, which is on sale from the 29th of February. Coming up, we have some good news and bad news on Abbey's new 10% super ISA. Before that, though, tax on buy-to-let property. If you haven't paid tax on your rental income, expect to be visited by a ghost. Ghost officers, as they're being called, are now being employed by HM Revenue and Customs to check the advertising cards in shops and supermarkets, advertising flats available for rent, uh, in order to see if individuals 
are letting out their properties but failing to declare the income on their tax returns. All of this uh, has been found out by the accountancy firm PKF. So to find out what you should be doing to exercise your tax return, Elaine Moore spoke to John Cassidy at PKF. So, John, HMRC have sent out 500 letters to property owners. Why are they doing that? Well, HMRC's investigation strategy all revolves around a risk assessment. They're looking for the business sectors with the highest risk of tax going unpaid for whatever reason uh, exists. And they've identified property as one of the main areas. The reason for that, I think, is that the tax issues surrounding property ownership, whether it's development or investment, are, are complicated, even though it's a relatively small thing for a lot of people. They're very, very complicated. So what do property owners who receive a letter need to do? Well, the most recent letters that have gone out from HMRC are under the guise of interventions, and they're outside of the legislation and quite a softly, softly approach. They're basically saying, we have got some information that you may have got some property rental income that you haven't included on a tax return. Now, I think the only sensible thing that anybody can do is to make some sort of disclosure to HMRC. Whether there's undeclared income to disclose or whether there's been a misunderstanding or whether the rental activity has led to overall losses, I think the the sensible thing is to communicate open dialogue with HMRC and it's how you do that that I think will be the most important thing. Why are the revenue targeting property owners? Well, um, as I said before, I think the tax issues surrounding property ownership, rental property ownership, are complex. And there is an awful lot of misunderstanding amongst property owners. Um, I've recently uh, seen, for example, a case being dealt with by HMRC's prosecution people, whereby for 15 years or so the property investors have been under the complete misconception that if they reinvest each year's profits into the business, so for instance buying new properties, refurbishing existing ones, they get some sort of deferment, some sort of reinvestment relief, and it doesn't become taxable until later on. A lot of misunderstandings like that, a lot of misunderstandings about the type of expenses that can be claimed against rental profits, and misunderstandings about things like, well, I've made a loss, therefore I don't need to include it. And so finally, how are the revenue searching for people who they think might have evaded tax on their properties? Using all sorts of methods, there are uh, the employment of what we might call ghosts who are going around looking at supermarket notice boards and news agents' windows, looking for people who have got properties to to let. Uh, And also, since 2003, every property transaction in the UK requires a stamp duty land tax return to be made directly to HMRC. They can marry that sort of thing up with the uh, tax returns they're receiving. They know who's got more than one property. It might even be things like disgruntled tenants. I've seen a recent example of uh, a tenant who was in dispute with the landlord over who should be paying the council tax and some of the other bills. And he was thrown out eventually, and perhaps they do have informants such as that. That was Elaine Moore talking to John Cassidy at PKF. And for more details, you can read Elaine's article in FT Money with the Weekend FT on the 1st and 2nd of March. And finally today, we have some good news and bad news on an ISA paying 10% a year. Um, Steve, where is the bad news in a 10% return? Or more to the point, where do I sign up? 
Well, indeed. Uh, not only is it 10%, but, but you can also transfer in as well. You could transfer other ISAs from other institutions to get that 10%. The bad news, first bit of bad news, is the 10% only lasts one year. It's a variable rate as well, so it will probably come down broadly in line with base rates, but who knows, maybe it will come down a lot more. Um, but never mind that, once it's only there for a year, and then the actual rates that the um, Abbey and the Alliance and Leicester, which are the two institutions currently offering or will be offering these things from Monday. Oh, so Alliance and Leicester is also offering a 10%, I suppose. Yes, and you do need to make sure you ask for the right one, but it's basically the 10% one, um, and um, they, the, both of these deals will be available publicly from Monday. So, so after the first year, you are then going to be knocked into a sort of bog standard ISA, which is paying the equivalent current rate of about five percent, five and a quarter with one four and seven five the other. So that's not competitive. But the real catch in all this, or real potential catch in all this, is in order to get the ten percent ISA, you've got to take out or have a different product with the bank with our Alliance and Leicester or Abbey. In Abbey's case, it's mainly linked to what they call the Guaranteed Growth Plan, which is one of these sort of guaranteed stock market plans where you get a, a, a participation rate um, and your, your downsides protected. With Alliance and Leicester, um, for new customers, it's if you take out a certain type of uh, current account or on an, under the Premier brand, and Alliance and Leicester seems to have any number of permutations on this you do need to make sure it's the right premier current account then you can also take out the 10% ISA and for existing premier um, current account customers they can take out the ISA too but they have to put then put five grand into an investment right so if you are already an Alliance and Leicester customer a particular kind of one yeah, yeah and you've got one of the qualifying types of current account yeah. which will let you have the 10% ISA yeah you'd still have to make another investment of £5,000 into something else. Exactly. Okay. And if you're with the Abbey or thinking about going to the Abbey for the for their 10% yeah. super ISA, you mentioned this. you also got to invest in this guaranteed stock market yeah, it's bonds. Of, it's a matching investment typically. So whatever yeah. you put in, you've got to put, yeah. Some of these bonds can be quite good. They can offer you 120 130% of the FTSE's upside with full protection of your initial yeah. capital. Is Abbey's bond as good as that? Well, I don't think so, and not even Abbey. Um, is willing to say it's a good participation rate in, in the jargon. Um, the basic deal is I think you have an option of three and a half year or six year. You get a minimum. You do get a minimum return, to be fair. That's a minimum total return over three and a half years of 6%. 6% over yeah. three and a half years? Yeah. total minimum return over the six-year version of 18%. But the real catch, arguably, is the participation rate is 50 well the combination is the catch frankly is is 50 percent of the growth so the FTSE rises say 40 percent over six years you'll get 20 percent obviously as with most guaranteed products there is no participation in the dividends so you're losing the dividends as well there is one bit of good news to be fair that that the un, relatively unusual i believe for these sort of guaranteed products the returns treated as a capital gain even outside an ISIS. so so for most people it would be tax-free but, you know, you would need that tax-freeness um, to make it a decent return. And I, but I think the killer point is, frankly, that even Abbey isn't, is, is uh, saying that uh, it might struggle to beat cash, in which case, what are you doing in the product in the first place? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, and if you'd like more answers to the, to the question as to whether a 10% ISO is a good idea, look out for Steve's Deal of the Week, which is in 
FT Money with the Weekend FT on the 1st and 2nd of March. And that's all we've got time for in this week's FT Money show. Remember, you can email your views and your questions to ask.ftyourmoney@ft.com, and we'll be back next week with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Steve and John. Bye. Goodbye. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.